Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses, and becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and it turns out that it's also good for the planet. Individually, collectively, we can make a difference. That's a great concept, but how do we actually go about creating healthy, functional, biodiverse habitats on our land? If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I've been looking at the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist who has become alarmed by the decline in biodiversity that's caused by climate change and habitat loss. He's launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands. Instead, he's calling on private landowners to join what he calls the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. In these podcasts, I want to share ways in which people are implementing the kinds of changes he's advocating. Last week, we zipped around the planet to visit with Julia Fields in Australia. This week, we're heading off to Scotland to visit Amanda Martin. Amanda is one of my Click the Teaches coaches. Three years ago, she bought 20 acres on a very windy hillside so she could have her horses under her own care. When I visited her field on a June day a couple of years ago, the wind was blowing across the open fields. There were no trees to slow it down. And I remember being very grateful for the field shelter that she had put up for her horses. It might have been June, but it was still very cold. Wind wasn't the only challenge Amanda faced. A large portion of the land was overgrown with rushes. The drains were clogged, so much of what should have been good horse pasture was too waterlogged to use. Amanda set to work, starting with putting up the essentials that she needed to move her horses onto the land. She's still very much in the beginning steps of transforming her land into a horse property that also welcomes wildlife. I want to visit people who are well on their way, people like Julia Fields in Australia, but I also want to visit people who are just at the beginning of the process. That's a great way to learn. I found the same thing applies with training. You learn from watching experienced horse handler teams, and you also learn from beginners. The questions Amanda is having to solve are the same ones others will be facing. We can learn together, and together we can make a difference. We're jumping into the middle of what was a very long conversation. In the first part, Amanda and I were catching up with the 
year each one of us has had. And what a year it's been, my goodness, with the virus. With all the news out of the way, we were finally ready to focus on her property. So that's where we're going to jump in. So, so tell me about the field. The field? Oh, we're doing surface drains in a lot of places. Well, you haven't seen the pond either, so we've got a pond now. So we are, we are now apparently a talking point in Straven that um, people, because of lockdown, that road was like Piccadilly Circus. It was, <laughs> it was so busy, cyclists and walkers and runners. And so people now um, navigate Straven by the duck pond and it's our duck pond. So we've got a whole lot of ducks. We've got geese, actually. I had the hens to start with. You knew I had the hens because you, you, yes. you've had my hens. Yep. So the hens were there and I was... I, we got the the pond was part of the drainage. There was one piece of it. When you stand at the back of the field shelters, I don't know if you remember, it goes down a slope slightly, and that bit there was it was full of rushes, and it just it was always wet. It never dried out. Whereas the boggy bit that I had with all the other rushes did dry out yep. sometimes, but this bit didn't dry out. So I thought, well, everything's coming down here. We did some drainage work. We knew that everything was coming down to that point. I said, well, let's just flood it. Let's just deliberately flood it and that way we allow more water to come down there because it's obviously going there gathering and going nowhere. So let's dig a big hole that we basically create a massive soak away and everything can run out the field into this and let's see what difference that makes. So that's what we did. And then... Um, now that we've gotten to the field, let's actually do this formally so that it could turn into a podcast. Okay. So you bought the property now. You've had it how long? Three years. Three years. Is that all? I would have said yeah. it was more. Three years. And, and can you describe it? So you, how many acres? It is 20 acres. And it's in a triangle shape. So the base of the triangle sits along the road front. And the tip of the triangle goes up towards some um, fir trees. And it's almost like it's in three different sections in terms of the type of ground that I've got. So I have a long piece at the front that runs along the roadside that is good grazing. So that would be that would have been cattle grazing or sheep grazing. Then I have a a wetter area that at the moment is full of rushes, um, which I did have cut at one point. That's a, another piece of the story. Um, that was an interesting experience. So there's the middle piece that is where the, the rushes have taken over. But then once you get out of there and go up to that piece, the top piece of the triangle, so the small triangle at the top, which isn't that small, it's probably about four or five acres, is like meadow, it's like a meadow up there. Um, and there's actually run rigs there. I don't know if you know what run rigs are, where it's... No. Um, Run rigs were developed, this is, uh, we'd go back to Victorian times and probably before that actually, to increase the amount of um, land you had for planting, the soil was piled in, oh, you know, we do it for gardening as well, but it's so at a, a grander scale. Yep. So we've actually, and you can see it from the Google Maps satellite. When I look at my piece of land, you can actually see the run rigs going up it. So that's the meadow piece at the top, and that's where my skylark, skylark have been nesting and a whole load of it. You go up there and it's like a different world. It's amazing. The butterflies, the moth, the, the birds. It's absolutely incredible. And that's where I found a dead sheep as well. 
Oh. I bumped into the farmer who, uh, he actually came to introduce himself the first summer I was there. And he said, um, he said, oh, I lost a sheep in there. The farmer, he, he used to rent the, that field out um, to graze sheep. And it just so happened the day before I had found a skeleton. And uh, and he said, I lost a sheep up there once. It's funny you should mention that. I think I found it. Um, I don't know how he managed to lose it. It must have died. Sheep are fickle. They're, they just yes. die. Yes. They, just, <laughs> they just die is the, the most bizarre thing. So, yeah, he never found it. So, so it's in this kind of three, uh, three pieces. Where we put the pond is where all the rushes are, that main band in the middle, down to one side. The land kind of slopes off to the sides and we put the pond down to the wettest side. And then we fenced it in and we put, I was offered two geese. <laughs> so, so I took them and now we've got two geese, 12, 13 ducks and 12 hens, 13 hens as well. They have to be fenced in now because of the avian flu. Is that what you were saying? Yes. So we've got this. So the whole pond is fenced in for the foxes. Um, okay. But the ducks, the ducks and the geese are amazing. They have learned because the pond is about um, three and a half, four feet deep at the deepest point. They just go and if, if something appears and they're scared about, of something, they just go and sit in the middle of the pond because they can sleep there all night. They, they're fine. They just, you know, head under the head under the wing and they just sleep there. Um, and they somehow managed to stay all in all one piece. But for the hens, I couldn't do that. So we fenced it in properly. We fox-proofed it. And uh, we did all that. But yes, for avian flu now, we have had to put enclosures within that enclosure. So within the fox and the badger-proof enclosure, we've had to make a bird-proof enclosure. So it's netting over the top of it and all this kind of okay. stuff. So at least until the end of March, they've all got to be enclosed in. And that's had a huge impact actually on the small birds in the area because I would go down and feed the ducks and the hens in the morning and, you know, turn my back to walk back up to the, the field shelters and there would be a whole flurry of small birds coming in to feed. And because all the food is now in the enclosures with the hens, so we're having to put food out for the small birds. And then I'm, I'm now I'm worried as well because I'm thinking I'm giving them, instead of them having different areas they could go to, because for the hens I'd be scattering the food around and things like that. And the wee birds could go you know, all over the place and get wee bits yeah. of food. Um, they can't do that anymore. So I'm putting down tubs for them and saying, here's your food. Because obviously I don't want to encourage rats either. Right, right. Because I don't know how much the wild birds are going to eat, so I can't really scatter for them. So I'm having to put down these little tubs. So I'm now making them vulnerable to predators. Yeah. Because we've got hawks in the area as well. Yeah. Yeah. Unintended consequences. Yeah. The, the consequences are incredible when you start to really break it down and think about it. So that was hard work. A couple of weeks before Christmas, that was announced that we had... Um, or the, the deadline was a couple of weeks before Christmas. We had three weeks notification to get everything enclosed in. And that included us buying all the materials, getting them delivered, all of that stuff. And then we had snowfall and the netting we had chosen. It's it's done an amazing job, but then one morning <laughs> you could barely get in the enclosures because the netting was all down. So I've actually just ordered, and it should be here two weeks time, a week and a half. I've ordered a polytunnel frame. Oh, yeah. 
So we'll use that instead um, and put them in a, a polytunnel frame and then just put the netting over the polytunnel frame. So not do a polytunnel. Because I don't think a polytunnel would survive up there. It's too exposed. You know, the plastic. Yeah, you do have a lot of wind. I mean, the, the yeah, impressions no. certainly that I had was you're on a very windswept side of a long rise. Yeah. 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 It's, it's rare to have days where there's no wind. But that said, this year has been quite different, and actually there have there have been much more days without wind. That um, in this, we've got a cold spell just now where it's been down to about minus ten overnight, and um, I've actually been up there without a jacket on, just a a fleece and a you know a light jacket, not a, not my heavy winter jacket, and worked away, and it's not been cold because there's no wind. Wow, because we were bundled up in June from the from the wind. So your long-term plans for the land, since you have these different sections, how are you going to manage the pasture areas for the horses so that you have good grazing? What are your plans? The plan has always been to reclaim the area that's got rushes on it. That was my main goal. And as I've done various things to try and reclaim that, we've really come to the conclusion that that's going to have to be trees. So I'm back to looking into grants for trees because we can get some funding for things, or we can apply for funding, but we might not get it, but we can apply for funding for that. So that middle piece is going to have to be trees. And have you researched what are the native trees? What would you be planting? The two main ones I want to plant are willow and alder because they okay. soak up water, they just drink yeah. up water. So those are the two best ones and they'll yeah. survive in that kind of boggy area. So And they're they're keystone species. So when, when yeah. Talamy talks about the different uh, genera that are you know, so these, that play a significantly greater role in terms of ecosystem function mm -hmm. than other species, willow and, and the alder are right there. Yeah. Because they, they, and that's in terms of what are the insect species that they support that uh, produce caterpillars, which is yeah. what you want for the birds. Yeah. So if you're planting willow, that's grand. Yeah. And I've already planted some around the pond. So there's willow there and it's growing and it's doing well. I only planted a small amount because I wanted to see am I going to attract too many deer in if I start doing this? I do have deer go through the field but they generally stay further up. Um, yeah. As part of the drainage, we've got two more ponds as well, and we can see the footprints um, of the deer around the ponds. And we can actually see where they've gone into the, the ponds. They're much shallower ponds, and you can see where they've gone in, and um, they've obviously stood in it for a drink and then come out the other side. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Yeah. So, yes, those are the two. I, I, we might end up having to do it in stages because those two species, once we get those planted, they might dry up enough that then we see, what do we plant next? Yeah. wouldn't have survived in in really wet ground but now we'll survive that that's dried up a little bit and then you know and then maybe you know a couple of years later we're we looking at planting something else and then planting so we might have to do it that way we'll see but the nice thing about the grant is um the first document i've printed out is 24 pages long of here's advice on how to submit this application how to complete the application form and it's not just about you know here's the in this box you know, you put this detail, right, it's right. here's the things you need to consider. And 
here are, here are going to be the trees that we would be providing a grant for here's the you know so here's the type of land we want here's you know so it breaks it down into it's kind of a, it's, to win the money you you it's a point system so they're saying if you plant the right species you get 10 points if you plant enough acreage you get 10 points you, so we either get one three five or ten points depending on your choices um, and they give you a list of the the trees that they will give you a grant for and all of them are native to the UK Excellent. including the pines that they've picked are classed as native species I think there was one that wasn't um, but the others all were so uh, but they what they encourage you to plant um, the pine trees which I don't know I don't know if we would, but in terms of the, we've got to look at this as well for a, a business because if we want to build up there, we've got to then have a business plan. This is the right. new planning permission thing that we've got to have a business plan and we've got to show for five years that we can make a profitable business and there is an, an amount, a minimum amount that you have to be making, be profitable with each year for them to say, okay, that's a business that, that needs you there. I've been digging a bit more as to other ways around it that my farrier, um, I now use a farrier to trim the horses with time. I just, I was running out of time. So lovely guy. He does a, a really good, good job. He's so nice with the horses. So nice. Yes, which them. counts a huge, a huge yeah. way towards, yes. Yeah. yeah. He knew I had an anxious pony. And when he came out, uh, you know, I'd, I'd warned him about it beforehand. I said, you, you probably won't get near him, but, you know, we'll, we'll give it a go. He... Um, sure enough, he walked on on the on the yard. Teddy was took off to the other end and stood there like a dragon. <laughs> I got him to come over. I got Teddy to come over because Teddy's he wears a head collar and things now. He's he walks about with the head collar on, and you know I can lead him with the head collar. He's he's turned into quite a polite citizen. So I I brought him over to meet the farrier, and he came over and said that's fine as long as we're doing you know click and treat. He was Teddy was okay with that, and. The farrier said, right, I'll, you know, I'll try and pick up his feet and see how far we get. And and before he even went to do anything, he said, now, here's something that you need to remember. He said, whatever this pony does to me, it's not his fault. Wow. You're a keeper. Exactly. So you well, we should mention that Teddy is a rescue. Yes. Yes. And it isn't his fault. It's not his fault. No. No. So that was fantastic, um, but Teddy wouldn't let him pick up his feet. But what he had been doing was um, the farrier had been watching what I was doing with the click and treat. Now he didn't hear, he wasn't picking up on the fact I was clicking, yeah. but he, he realized there was something happening for this food and he saw the targeting. So he said, right, give me some of those pony nuts that you're using. And he started to copy what I was doing. And Teddy came straight over to him and said, you suddenly became interesting. Wow. And now every time he's, he still hasn't managed to trim his feet, but every time he's there, he's he does the other two horses first, takes off all his, his kit, takes the pony nuts and goes over and does a bit of work with Teddy and uh, just building his trust. And he said, this will take as long as it takes. So yep. fabulous. Definitely. a fabulous. keeper. So what was he telling you about the, the land? So he was telling me he used to have a pig and you have to have a license to have a pig. 
and somebody had reported him for having this pig and the, the um, SSPCA turned up, so the um, Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, turned up about this pig. They got reported for some reason, cruelty to the pig or something, which was not true. <laughs> right. But he um, had a pig and he wasn't yeah, supposed to have a pig. Yeah, had a pig. So somebody yeah. made, made trouble for him. Yeah. So the SSPCA officer turned up and said, um, and it turns out he, they knew each other from the, the past and he said, um, you know, what are you planning to do here? Because they were living in a caravan on the land and he said, well, what is it you're planning to do here? And he said, well, I'm trying to get a house to, um, to live here. And he said, oh, well, all you need to do then is get a license for your pig. Because it's an animal that requires a license, that means then it now requires you to be living here. So that's how you get your planning permission. Well, pigs are delightful and they're wonderful to train. Yeah. And the, the other thing that we had thought about as well was sheep, rare breed sheep. Yeah. And have them on the land as well. And that's as well would make it. Um, more viable for having to live there so yeah. so there's a few options yeah. so how are you going to so some of the farm ponds that I've seen have been scummy messes of algae how are you going to manage your pond so they don't become green sludge ponds it has a flow through so basically we dug out we, we followed the drain down the four foot drain and cut one end of it cut the other end, that's the inlet, and we put a higher up outlet so that it, it will always have a flow through. Um, that, and we've got ducks and geese. Plants don't survive ducks and geese. <laughs> Newts don't survive ducks and geese. Mice don't survive. <laughs> so, yeah, they've, they keep, I did try and plant some, uh, some pond plants in there, but they were gone within two days, they were gone ducks ate them so it's the water's quite brown that's coming through what flows in is is not brown um, but the water in it is quite brown so you can't see through it the ducks have survived on it john's ducks came up because remember he had ducks down at the house yes and it was amazing how yellow his ducks were to look at his ducks on their own they didn't look yellow when you put them next to because i've got indian runner ducks who are that are pure white and i've got khaki camels that look like mallards as well um, but the Indian runners are the very upright ducks. Their hips have got, uh, their pelvis has got a different shape or configuration. So they're very upright. They're not the traditional flat ducks. That they walk very upright. So we brought John's ducks up and put them in and they looked so dirty. Two days in my pond, which is brown water, and those ducks were immaculate. Wow. So it is clean water. Yeah. And it's got the flow through. So... It seems to be doing okay. So you're planting, you're going to plant willow in the areas where the rushes were. Yes. And what else are, what else are you planting? What will I see as I, you know, if I were to come visiting six months from now, a year from now, two years, five years down the road, what, what are some of the changes I'd start to see? Oh, some of the changes you start to see. We will, where the parking was, so as you go in the gate, and that's my strip of good grazing at the front there. That's become my winter grazing, and that is also my hayfield, so that's a change. My goodness, an actual hayfield. An actual hayfield. That's ex exciting. Yeah, so I got my first year taking hay off there, I got 24 bales. The farmer said to me, you'll get 10, maybe 9, and we got 24 bales. This year wasn't so good, I only got 10, so I will have to reseed and fertilise, but it will be the... 
seed for horses, the fertilizer for horses, so that I can start to then change um, the grass that's growing there. And I'll, I'll definitely I'll get it away from being that good lush cattle grass that was there and we'll get some proper grass in for the horses. So that will gradually change over the years. So that's my hayfield and my winter grazing then because that's down for the winter. And the aim now with the trees going in, what we'll do is, because you have to put access roads in for the trees, because this is all part of the grant funding as well, is that you, you have to put access in because you must show that you're maintaining the trees. So we'll continue the parking and we'll make a, a road that goes up through the middle of the fields. It'll go up through the rushes and then either side of the rush, the, the track the, or the road in will be uh, where the trees are planted. So they'll be split into kind of two pockets divided by the road. That okay. gives me access out to the meadow at the, the top. Oh. And that will be the horse's summer grazing. But because I've got so much wildlife up there, I will have to section off an area so that I've got some wildlife left for the um, a, a proper wildlife area that's just undisturbed um, because it's the, the fact that Skylark have come in and they were nesting yes. is yes. quite phenomenal so our friend who has the falconry, Haven Valley falconry I said to you he had come out and he was astounded by what he was hearing and, and he was picking out the Skylark and all these different birds and he was saying wow I haven't heard this in a long time and um, haven't heard that one in a long time so that was really interesting to to have him there and, and listen to stuff so it's made me realize that I can't just use that as summer grazing I will need to have an area so it'll probably be the very top triangle and there's an old stone dike along one side and the fence has kind of fallen down a wee bit there but it does go up to it's quite it's quite a sharp point at the top so I'll probably just run a fence along it and just keep that a section up there that is just going to be the wildlife and the deer seem to come in and out of there as well. There's lots of animal tracks through for deer and badgers and foxes and things like that. So, so that's going to be the real question of can you develop this land so that you can have it all, you know, that you can have a business so you can, you can mm -hmm. move there, that you can have good grazing for the horses. Yeah. Because you got the land after all for the horses. At the end of the day, you... The reason you have this field is because you have horses. Yep. And so the horses have to have healthy grazing. So you're going to need to figure out as you're in progress, um, you know, how do you, how do you manage and rotate and so on the, the, the grazing so that yep. uh, you have good, healthy grazing, mm -hmm. sustainable grazing for the horses. But then at the same time, uh, it's a wildlife sanctuary. You've yeah. got skylarks. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance all of that and actually end up with it being even more of a wildlife sanctuary because you're on the land and you're adding trees and you're you're you've put in ponds, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, that when if I were to come back in five years, you'd be pointing out this huge wonderful abundance of wildlife. Yeah. 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 Well, and the aim is to to just specify areas that, you know, this look at it and, and just work out, you know, this area isn't going to function for horses, therefore that goes to this function. This area is not going to work. So like the rushes, it's not going to work for anything else right now. So right. let's put trees in there. So that feeds the wildlife for 
you know, with the trees. The pond area is, um, you know, around that will be willow all around that as well. Yeah. Um, my first year of the pond in there, we had dragonfly. I sat one night for about an hour watching dragonfly. It was amazing. So even just the changes that I've, I've made, they, even though they, they seem quite small and they were not done for anything other than drainage or, you know, trying to reclaim a piece of the land back. It's made some some really great changes already and attracted in some different wildlife already. So we, we will just deliberately section areas off that, that just will not be touched. Um, and that will be where we're trying to attract the wildlife yeah. in. And we'll deliberately put things in there. You know, we, you can buy these, uh, the, the, the they call them the, the bee bombs and the butterfly bombs and things like, you know, for the seed bombs. Um oh. And local councils as well also have, uh, if you request in the, the springtime, you can get seeds from them for encouraging butterflies and, um, and bees into your garden. So they give it away free so we can get seeds and things. So we'll plant things that then will encourage more wildlife. In. And, and one of the reasons I like the idea of the, the, the top corner being for that, you know, that little wildlife sanctuary for the bees and the birds and things is the furthest away from the road point. Yes. So they're not going yeah. to fly across the road. You're not going to have a good meal and fly across the road and get hit by yes. a car. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's all well and good to say, oh, we'll keep the hedgerows. That's a nice wildlife sanctuary in the hedgerows as the bunnies and everything else run into the road and get smushed. Yeah. 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 Go up the top. So that's, it keeps it up there. And it's a nice walk to then to get up there. And it's, you know, it's not just, it's right there and you kind of take it for granted. We deliberately have to go up there and, and you know and go and see that part of the the land and it's nice that you know when we do go up there we spend ages we wander about and say oh look at this look at that that's changed from the last time we were here because it still it still is quite an adventure getting yes. up there well it'd be fun to hear reports in terms of what you spot what's moved in yeah you know as you let that little sort of section of wilding uh, evolve what moves in. And then what moves into the horse pastures? Because, you know, you'll, you'll get nice biodiversity in terms of, of the plants that are in the horse pastures. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I, I came across an article, it's on um, Farm Advisory, the Farm Advisory Service, and it's a, a, a service in Scotland. You get some time with these advisors free of charge and then they, they charge you thereafter for time. I think we get the equivalent of a day's worth of, of consultancy with them um, wow. free of charge. You have to register as a, a you get a, a county parish number for your for your land. So it's like a equivalent of it would be like a small holding number or a crofter's number or something like that. But as soon as you get that number, you are now instantly registered and your class is a new entrant into farming. You've then you're on a ticking clock for um, after five years, you're no longer classed as a new entrant. So your grant funding changes and it reduces what's available to you reduces. So the last time I spoke to them, they said, don't register yet. Don't come to us just yet. Wait until we've got the EU and Brexit sorted out so that we know what funding we, we do have. And right. then come back to us so that we, you know, we've got a clear path for you and that you, you know, you're not just sitting there for a year wasting a year's worth of funding that you right, could have right, had right. because we didn't have it left, you know, we didn't have it available, we didn't know what was going to be available or whatever. So, you know, we lose out. And a you year. weren't really ready because there were other things that you were doing, like you were yeah. moving house and yeah. so on. And in a pandemic year, it's not really the best time to be 
doing some of these projects because there are just too many constraints because of the virus. So you're better off waiting a year or two. Yeah. And then you'll have a better sense of what you want to do with your, yeah. the direction yeah. you want to head in. So what kind of services do they offer? What, what will it's, you get from them? A lot of it is to do with, you know, how do you get the grants? What grants are available, available to you? And um, they help you with completing the application forms and things like that. But they also just advise you on land management and, you know, what you do with various things. And one of the articles that I found that they've got, um, or one of the, the pamphlets that they, they've got, the downloadable pamphlets, is all about um, planting, foraging for cattle and for grazing. So not just planting grass, but actually planting more diverse um, plant oh, species. Excellent. So I need to have a good read at that as well and see what's in there and see what I can think of for the horses because they it's all it's, it's not geared around horses it's all geared around cattle and sheep and right you know so I need to have a think about how I can then adapt that for the horses and but it's just it's, it's lovely to go through these and just find the various ideas that they've got you're very good at researching and that's that's what you do it's what you know and I think one of the one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast and to go talk to various of my uh, friends who have land and to find out what we're all doing with our properties is it's all well and good to say oh yes yes you know I should use my let my horse property this acreage that I have or my suburban lawn yes yes I should shrink my lawn I should plant more natives I you know I should work to have my horse pastures my land more sustainable I need to make a difference in climate change yes 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 that's all well and good but to actually make a change, to do something, mm-hmm. is completely different. Now, there's a certain amount of you've just moved on to this property and you had to make changes because yeah. you had 20 acres of rushes, basically, and not really that much good horse pasture that was not being devoured or destroyed by clogged drains. So there was a lot that you had to do in order to make this a usable horse property there's fencing you have to put up to say I want you grazing here this this week but not there uh that sort of thing and there's just that general planning of you know I'm going to sit with this land for a little while to see Mm -hmm. what you know to see what it does where do the winds come where does the water sit you know all of those things that Mm -hmm. you just have to be on a piece of land for a little while to really begin to understand right. it. And particularly land that has been in use before and had its and had changes made to mm-hmm. it. But then some of those changes have fallen into neglect like the drains. Yeah. So you've had to do a lot of work just to make it a reasonable space for the horses. Yeah. You had to put up field shelters and that sort of thing. So there's a certain amount of work that is a given. But then what I see in a lot of horse properties is people stop there. They put up yeah. their barn, they fenced in their paddocks, whatever, and then they let their property turn into a mud hole. Mm-hmm. And I see the horses, particularly in this part of the world, where uh, we have, we have, we have, a, we have mud seasons, and we have uh, stretches where 
right now if your horses are out in their in a field they're probably just churning it into mud yeah and how do you maintain your property so that you're not so compacting the soil where those horses are are yeah. churning into mud that, that it can't absorb the water and i do have those bits i do have the the, the the main traffic bits, so where the horses are going in and out of the, the grazing, is, it is a mud hole. So what I did was I had, um, when we did we did the surface drain, so the V ditches, so basically just a V dug into the ground to just drain away all the surface water because there was so much water just wasn't going anywhere. We had a couple of years of crazy amounts of rain and the water was going nowhere it, the, the water table even though my land is about the, almost the highest point on that road there was nowhere for the water to go that's how high the water table was mm. so we went surface drains and it's made a huge difference but what we were going to do was make crossings on them so basically turn them into french drains and a french drain is basically a ditch but back filled with stones but stones that allow the water through so it creates it creates a kind of soak away. But you have to get expensive stones for that. They're washed, they have to be washed, otherwise all the, the grit and, and dirt that comes with it just clogs up with the water. So they have to be washed stones. So I bought, I think it was 20 tonnes of washed stones. And we use some of them for bits of crossings that the horses use. So we've got big, big drain pipe, you know, kind of, that'd be 12, yeah. 14, 14 inches. As a, as a tube and then covered over with these stones and the horses walk across them quite the thing and I had some of these stones left so I was looking at some of the really boggy bits thinking I, I just can't have the horses go in and out of this anymore so I had my farmer come down again dug a big hole and put these in it and built a soak away so the water's is draining anytime that that area gets flooded it soaks all the water into the, or the, it gives the water somewhere to go because my, my, my thinking all the time was I just need to give the water somewhere to go yes it's sitting here doing nothing I need to give it somewhere to go and that was my thinking was let's just create a soak away because you can buy these huge big, big tanks they're like the you know the, the water tanks that I've got the, the UBC yes I know yeah yep. it's basically one of those but it's porous it's so they're specifically made they're called soak away tanks and you sink them into the ground so you put um you, you dig a, it's, you dig it out, you put a layer of sand, a layer of stones, and you put your tank in, and then you put a layer of stones across the top of it again, and that's it, it basically just gathers the water and gives it somewhere to go. So I thought, why put a tank in? Why not just get the washed stones and backfill it and see if it works? So I've been trying to create some of the, the ways in and out for the horses. I've been trying to create soakaways like that. So I do need to get more stones in to do those. And does it work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, the soakaways I've got are filled they're filled right up and the surface drains work amazingly because they all all the surface drains lead back to the main pond and last year before we put in those surface drains that pond really dried out and almost emptied over the summer and we had quite a wet summer as well this summer has been quite a, a dry summer that pond never emptied out wow it was always full and there's always a trickle of water, at least a trickle of water coming in there. Um, and the other two ponds up the top have both filled up as well. So the drains make a big difference. One of them filled up almost overnight. Wow. The surface drains make a big difference. 
people listening to this who live in dry climates where you're trying to get more water and here you are trying to get rid of the water. (laughs) You know, that's what makes it all so interesting because there's no one size fits all solution. You've got, you've got to channel water off your land because everything is so waterlogged that the only thing that's growing there are the rushes. So, so the soakaways work, so I need to do more of those, but at the moment, the, the water, the areas where the heavy traffic is going through is definitely getting boggy. And I've been putting some bedding down for the horses, and I actually got, it was, this year I got straw in for the ducks for this lockdown that the ducks have to have. <laughs> because they were, you know, they're now in a much more enclosed area. My pond had grass had grown all around it, it was lovely. And as soon as you isolate the ducks into one area, all of a sudden it's just, it was turning into a boggy mess. So I thought I've got to protect it somehow. I'll put some straw down and I'll just add more straw every week. I'll add more straw down. So I had, I got the, a big bale of straw from the farmer and I thought rather than give the horses shavings as bedding, I might as well give them straw as bedding. So now the wet straw comes off of there and goes to the walkways for the horses. And I put that down and just layer it down, even though it's all wet and whatnot, it's still, it's, stopping them sinking so much as they go yeah. through there so i'm recycling that as well to try and help with that piece at the moment and then the other thing that i do is they don't have a paddock that they go to it's like not this isn't just you like grazing this paddock today grazing this paddock next week grazing that one i've i moved my fence line so because it's a long strip i've got at the at the front go where they were going out initially they just had a small length of that you know the, the fence line so if I've got my strip of land this way the fence line goes that way across it they were coming out onto that bit they just did one strip and I just move this fence line and just keep moving it down so they're not churning up the same piece of ground all the time the only bit they're churning up the same piece of ground all the time is to get in and out of it's basically the end of my track they're going uh-huh. in and out the end of the track but then after that they can go in any direction to get to that fence line and that fence line keeps moving so they'll then strip graze then the next day it's moved along a bit and they'll strip graze the next bit and the next day it's moved along so that does a few things as well because it's meaning the horses have to move up and down this fence line to eat so they're not just standing in one spot so they're actually having to move up and down and then the next day the same thing move up and down next day same thing move up and down so that's how i've done it so that they're not just destroying one piece of pasture yes so by the time they move back to sort of the start of all of that, it will have had quite a long rest from the yeah. horses. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. Neat. So yeah. But lots more still to do. <laughs> yes. So what will I see in a couple of years? What's the vision? In a couple of years, you'll definitely see some trees planted there. If we get funding to plant the trees, if we get funding for this woodland creation, then it would probably be a proper road we'll put in there. It'll be tractor width, but it'll be a proper tarmac road through it. Otherwise, it will just be the same track that I've done before because it's it's a bit cheaper to do. So it depends on that. Whether we get the funding or not will change some of the materials we use. But we're definitely going to plant the trees in there. So you'll definitely see some some trees planted. The second pond that we, we did is probably going to be fenced off as well. So, th- so that means all the rushes will be gone. <laughs> Sorry, in the middle bit, all the rushes will be gone. Because yeah, in two years, we'll definitely have done all this in two years. I'm just trying to think of the plans. 
thinking, gosh, is it going to two years, five years? But I think you will see everything that I've talked about. Mm. I think you will see it. Yeah, because we'll have the horses out back. We'll have the horses out at the, the summer grazing. And as soon as I put them out there, I will have to section off that area at the back. I need to put a new fence along the right-hand side of the field. That collapsed before I moved into the field. So we've found somebody who said, I'll do you a good price um, for fencing. Um, he's a fencing contractor. He is also a gamekeeper and land manager. So, Ooh, so um, another great resource. A fantastic resource. He actually has our drakes. I um, incubated 10 eggs this year because I've got two two drakes with my, my hen ducks. And um, I incubated 10 eggs and we had four boys. So we ended up with, and then John's drakes as well, we ended up with six boys. And this guy has a massive pond on the land that he manages. So he's taken the drakes for us. And what a nice guy. He took photographs. He went to see the, the drakes and make sure they were okay. And it's not just walk out his back door. It's on the quad bike and drive for, you know, 15 minutes to yeah. get to it. And he's taking pictures and sent to show us that the ducks are okay. So nice guy to have on board. We'll definitely get him up. This is how you build sort of a local community and network of people, of knowledgeable people, because there are all sorts of things that they will know. Yeah. That we would not even, we wouldn't even know what questions to ask. Yeah. But they'll already know the answers. Yeah. 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 And it is just casual conversation with these people. And it's just, oh, right. Oh, okay. And it's just, you know, noted, noted, and I'll come back and then look at it, research it, see what we need to do. So things like the ground preparation for the, the trees, I suddenly thought we need to do some ground preparation. I don't even know what to do. It's not just a case of stick the, stick the trees in, in the ground and that's it, they grow. And I found a contractor who actually advises for the farm advisory service, which is a service that's um, just for uh, in Scotland. Certainly the one that I use is just in Scotland. So he's written an article for them on creating woodland um, and he, that is his job, is ground preparation for creating woodland and things like that. So that, again, you're just a short article, just reading all this stuff. So I'm waiting to hear back from them as well to um, get them to come up because they'll be able to give me lots of advice as well on, uh, you know, species to plant and things like that. So, um, and he'll he'll know about the grants because in the article that he wrote, it said, um, you know, there's special considerations for the grants. So... Um, he'll know all about that as well so so it's this this lovely network of what money is available that's important to know to help me improve my land what is it that i need to do who's go who's going to who's out there who can help me learn more yeah. and advise me on this what are some of the questions i need to be asking and there's this wonderful support system that's available in scotland yeah. to help develop your land yeah yeah that's awesome yeah. it's amazing what you find when you when you get out there um one of the one of the really interesting things i found this year was with the, the rushes i thought i'm going to try and tackle them so i bought myself a scythe okay. so i've been scything it's, it's it's so therapeutic <laughs> i was i, I would if, if people were well maybe as sad as me that think that's really therapeutic but I kept offering to people, please come in and they would see me with a side, please come in and give it a go. You just have to experience it. It's just so satisfying. And I'm thinking, and I get my rushes cut at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that you've got to get the right type of blade for what you're doing? 
and there's a right type of handle and a wrong type of handle and all this kind of stuff. I know nothing about scything. So in all of that, I discovered that there's actually a scything festival in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) All this stuff I've been uncovering just because it was like, I'll see if I can cut down those rushes. And I did, I cut down probably about half an acre of rushes. I cut down so many rushes. But then I did get my contractor in to, because apart from the rushes, if you really want to kill them off, you've got to get right down to the ground. So the, the farmer who's been doing some work for me, he came in and actually cut probably two thirds of those rushes down. And it was amazing to, to have them cut down because that was, you needed a GPS to go out there to make sure you could get to the top of the field and get back again through the rushes. They, they got so bad at one point. They didn't expand out, but they just thickened. They were so dense. So he came down and cut down about two thirds of them. And all of a sudden my field felt really small because we can actually just walk straight to the top of it. <laughs> it was so bizarre. And I could see over the rushes, I could see the, the undulations of the field. And so we went out with electric fence posts and marked where the surface drains were going to go. Here's where the pot in the next pond is going to go. And it was amazing to be able to do that, having not seen that piece of the land before and, and what it actually looked like. All I could see wow. was rushes. So tell me, because so rushes, they're native. Yeah. Are they native? I think they are, yeah. Okay. Obviously, they grow in wetland, boggy land. Well, traditionally, that's where you would see them. But because we've had so much rain over the last few years, we are getting rushes in bits of land that you just would not think you would see them. So I, I can't remember, we would have gone, we did drive down the Clyde Valley, which is, my mum lives down in the Clyde Valley. So we would have driven along the Clyde Valley to get to New Lanark. And yes. the Clyde Valley is, it is, as it says on the tin, you're driving through, you're in the bottom of a valley and obviously you've got, but you drive right along the side where you're literally, the side of the road is straight up yes. the side yeah. of the valley. Yeah. And there's some there's some grazing fields on there as you drive down that road to get to New Lanark. So they're on this crazy slope and they've got rushes. They are taking hold everywhere as long as and it's, it really has just been because it has rained and rained so and rained and everything has just stayed wet so it's not necessarily that it's boggy it's just stayed wet so my land has stayed boggy and and obviously the, the rushes have thrived in there yeah. um, but I also discovered one winter they got so thick they actually killed themselves off a little bit because all that you've got the nice fresh growth up through the middle anything at the sides then that dies falls over there was so much growth that it fell over and actually smothered other rushes growing up so one for one um summer it wasn't nearly as dense so i had them all cut down or two-thirds of them alistair managed to cut down about two-thirds of them what a machine that is that does that it's he did say to me, go to the other end of the field. Because I would always stand and watch what he was doing with his tractor. You know, because I'm, I'm his day labourer. You know, when he's doing the drains and things, I'm down in the holes with him. I'm the day labourer. So, because um, it's, it's just, for you know, yourself. It's the only way to learn yes. is just get yes. yes. And it gives me an appreciation then for what is it I need to do for the rest of it? Because I know how the drains work. I know, I know how these are working now because I've been down there digging them out myself. Um, <laughs> So I'm always there watching. I'm always there checking. I said, you need to go to the other end of the field. And he fired up this 
it's basically just a moor on the back of his tractor, but it's specifically for rushes and dense undergrowth. And that was that was something else when it fired up. I was at the other end of the field and I could just about feel the ground vibrate and he hadn't even started cutting. He just he just put the power to the to the blades and it was and watching things fly out of there and every now and again he would hit a really he would either hit a molehill or a really thick dense rush and you would just see this out the back of <laughs> fired up into the air it was, oh, it was amazing so that all cut down and but the rushes have grown straight back so i and i've really fought with this and fought with this and i, I think i said to you at the beginning that you, i don't know how to get rid of the rushes and i looked at all the different options for getting rid of them liming and fertilizing you really intensely lime them and really intensely fertilize them and you will kill them over a few years and there's other things i've looked at you know cut them keep cutting them back keep cutting them back and and i've really i'm now at the point where i think poisoning is going to be the only way to get properly rid of them which i never wanted to do Mm. but you can spray them or you can wipe them and a, a wiping blade is, or a wiper is a so sprayer. You know what a sprayer is. You basically there's arms go out the side of it, and it's right. and everything gets hit with it. Wiping is a machine where it's it it foams up the the um, pest not pesticide um, the herbicide herbicide. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. You would if you looked at the machine, it would look like it was going to drop the um, droplets of the herbicide onto the, the plants, but it doesn't because it foams up, it stays on the on the bottom of it and there's little um, strips come down so it kind of coats the strips. And as the tractor drives over your, your land, only the things that come into contact with the strips, with the herbicide being dropped down on this, with this foaming action, it only touches that. So it was only anything as high as that. So if you're so if your machine is going along at this height and your rushes are growing up to this height and nothing else is growing above your rushes or even up to that that level, then only the rushes get wiped. Okay. So it only kills the rushes. Obviously, that it still makes it into the soil. Yeah, because given the amount of water that you have, you know that that herbicide, some of it is going to get into the water. Yeah. And then I guess my question was. You know, in terms of wildlife, um, what what lives what need what needs rushes? Um, I do have some birds that are um, some of the buntings that I've got. Um, there's I've got reed buntings and things like that, so they certainly appreciate the rushes. So the area at the pond, there's a, a section above that that could stay with rushes easily, and that's where I've seen actually most of the buntings. Um, in that area there because that gets really wet that's that's you know because it's, it's just uh, on top of the pond so again all the water is coming down through that area first mm. um, and that's got three surface drains in it um, so that would be a bit harder to plant and maintain the trees and maintain the drains and the surface drains at that point so that area could easily stay with rushes and then a different wildlife area up at the top, the butterfly and bee wildlife area at the top. I still get butterflies and bees at the down in the rushes as well. Um, and the other thing, nettles, butterflies and nettles. 
I didn't know that until this year. And I was getting bumper crops of nettles. And I'm thinking, oh, I've got to get those cut down. And um, so I cut them down in the grazing because I, I was making hay out of it, or not the grazing, but the, my, my hay field. I cut them down for the in the hay field, but I left them outside the field and I, some real bumper crops of it. Because I went over and, and, and looked at one of them and it was, it was like a plague of um, butterflies all over it. So I, I read up on it, you know, what basically what likes nettles. I'm thinking nothing. And it was there it was on the internet, butterflies. Wow. So Excellent. We shouldn't get rid of all our nettles. <laughs> no. Oh, you have to make nettle tea too. Yeah. Well, I'm rethinking goldenrod because I had, I don't know why early on I formed this sort of goldenrod is an invasive plant that you don't want, don't want in your, in your pastures. The horses don't eat it, takes over, or, you know, you, you leave a pasture for a little bit and pretty soon all you have is goldenrod. And that's certainly true in my area that goldenrod can definitely take over a, a horse pasture. Uh, but now I'm learning how important the goldenrod is for maintaining, you know, it's one of those keystone species again. Yeah. So I'm going to rethink goldenrod. I'm going to, I'm going to have much, much more welcoming to the presence of goldenrod in the fields and, and along the edges and so on. And, and much more tolerant seems an arrogant word, but much more welcoming to the presence of goldenrod. Yeah. You know, it does, it does cause you to, I, I find I'm rethinking how I viewed a lot of the plants that we've traditionally been trained to go, ooh, that's a weed. Yeah. That's a weed. We don't want that. Yeah. Turns out we do want them. Yeah, because I, I, I've thought that for quite a few years. Is who deemed this to be a weed? You know, some of the weeds have got beautiful flowers on them. You think, yes. who deemed that to be a weed? Because some of the things that we want to cultivate take over ridiculously just as much as some of the, the, the weeds that we don't want. So how come that invasive plant is deemed pretty and wanted and that one's deemed... Because it's exotic and it came from somewhere else. Yeah. You know, it's so ironic because when you look at people and human history, if you're another human and you come from somewhere else, we don't want you. We want our tribe, but we don't want anybody from outside our tribe. But when it's a plant, yeah. oh, I definitely want that exotic thing in my garden. Yeah. And I want that exotic thing in my garden. But goldenrod in my garden? Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And yet if I go over to England... I will find in the nurseries, I will find pots of goldenrod for sale because it's exotic. Yeah. No, it's just too funny. Yeah. So it's it's really rethinking what are we planting and why are we planting it? Mm -hmm. And this rethinking this, that how do we restore healthy ecological function? Yeah. And I, I just really, uh, I really like this concept that Calumny is helping us all to see that that planting a non-native that does not support, say, I, I need a, you know, I have this tree that fell down. Well, what am I going to plant back there? Well, I could plant a non-native and exotic from the nursery. I could read all the the nursery books over the winter and say, oh, I want this beautiful flowering tree or that beautiful flowering tree from China or you know wherever it comes from. Or I could go to the nursery and buy a native 
to this area oak that is a keystone species yeah. that will support uh, I think he was saying like over 500 species of insects that produce caterpillars versus the exotic that might not support any insects that support caterpillars. Yeah. So it's just rethinking entirely what is, if I'm going to plant, well, what am I going to plant and why? Now, if, I'm, if you're going to plant trees, you could plant all kinds of trees, but what are you going to plant and why? Yeah. And certainly willow makes sense on, on wet ground. Mm -hmm. Of course it makes sense on wet ground. And picking the species of willow that would be native to your area makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. That's a, a good addition to the land. But you could you could be moving in completely the opposite direction. Well let me let me create a tree farm which I'm growing non natives. And that's no good. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. It is. Our conversation shifted at this point away from Amanda's land. So we'll end the podcast here. What I particularly like about this discussion is how it highlights the importance of research and networking. The resources and grants that are available in Scotland will obviously be very different from the resources that are available here on the other side of the Atlantic. So the takeaway from this are not the specific resources that Amanda is finding, but the takeaway is to check out what is available for you in your area. There may well be programs and grants in your area that can help you with the projects that your land needs. So the takeaway is to take a look for them. Networking can definitely help. It's a lovely example of don't take score too soon. It can seem like a disaster when your tractor breaks down. You know, it's you, you needed to get your pasture cut and now you've got a tractor repair bill. Ugh. But it's got to be done, so you do a little asking around and you find a farmer who will come and fix it for you. You end up chatting for a bit and he tells you about a grant he got for planting trees. You might never have heard about the grant if your tractor hadn't broken down. So it's don't take score too soon. And the lesson is talk to people and then do your research. In training, our horses always tell us what they need to work on next. This, the same thing holds true for land. Spend time letting your land tell you what it needs. Those boggy areas may be a natural wetland that needs to be left alone. Or they could be a sign of clogged drains and compacted soil. Maybe the people who had your land before you bought it kept too many horses or too many cows on the land and they left the animals on to graze for too long on too small an area and just compacted the soil. The land will tell you and it will also tell you what it needs to fix it. Amanda has been taking her time letting her land tell her what needs to be done to create a viable horse farm, a working business, a beautiful landscape, and a wildlife sanctuary. Good management lets you have all of this and more. With good care of the land, horse people can make a difference. Together, we are learning how.